Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, we are bringing you an extra special episode on the implications to property businesses regarding the coronavirus pandemic. So we are actually recording this at 7.30pm on the 20th of March, just after we've had a big government announcement. And fortunately, I've roped in two fantastic guests who can add a lot more insight than I can. And I've got Adam Lawrence, who our listeners will remember from episode number 14. If you haven't listened to that, go back and give it a listen. It's absolutely fantastic. And I've also got with us Daryl Norkett. And Daryl is one of the directors of a specialist lender, Lendwell. And he's been in banking for over a decade with previous positions at Barclays and Shawbrook. So he'll be able to give us some really good insight from a bank and lender's perspective. So thank you both for joining me and giving up your Friday night on what is the last night that pubs are going to be open. So it's good to see <laughs> you guys having a virtual beer with me. And, uh, and who said social distancing can't be fun? So, yeah, th- th- thanks for coming along. I've got, got the thanks, beer here, gents. Good. Oh, we're definitely going to get a photo of that. <laughs> Where's yours? Done. Nicely done. Nicely done. There we go. Look, I'm, 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 I'm teetotal until we know what's going on. So that could be, what, 15, 16 weeks, I think. <laughs> so... Look, if we if we kind of start where how is this pandemic affecting property uh, property businesses or every business for that matter, really, mm. to be honest. Um, so if we kind of start with, I don't know, we can go through what we think um, some of these business types are that are affected and what the measures that the government are putting in place may be. So if we make a start with residential landlords, obviously we've got implications of tenants losing income um, and for tenants that have lost their jobs and things like that and obviously the big one is people getting sick so um, I mean Adam do you want to kind of go through maybe some of some of the issues as being a residential landlord yourself of a lot of properties what are some of your concerns with this? Yeah I think um, you, you've hit a, you've touched on a few of the big ones there Rod really Ultimately, if you've got um, workers who rely considerably on insecure work, and that's a, an interesting phrase at the moment, really, because lots of people who, um, who have been caught up and would be caught up in IR35, even though that's been kicked down the road for a year at this stage mm-hmm. in the private sector, um, a lot of contractors that I know have already been laid off from contracts that they're on, um, on the basis, I assume, of the firms thinking, well, you know what? They'll pick up another. Um, they can pick up some more contractors if things turn around very quickly. Um, so, are you speaking about specific contractors rather than employees? So, self. You're so talking about self-employed here. It, it, exactly. So, I'm, well, yeah. when I say insecure workers, I want to be clear that I'm not just talking yeah. about gig economy and stuff like that. Yeah. I think there's absolutely loads of that, and I think um, that will also blend into zero-hours contracts. So, um, what tenants can you have at the moment? You can really rely on their income stream, local housing allowance, um, benefits tenants, social housing style arrangements that are organized um, through um, housing associations, registered providers. They're probably reasonable tenants, although of course your, your, your um, 
frontline care workers need to be insulated from actually having the virus and getting sick. I'm not quite clear yet on how, if you're in hospital with coronavirus, you're going to be able to claim um, the benefits that the government have just threatened to hand out, for example. But we've got, we're going to have a lot of logistical problems to go through. Um, but obviously your, your covenant strength, effectively, at the moment as a resi landlord um, is at, at the most jeopardy, realistically, that it's ever been. Because even someone like me who's worked quite hard to spread geography, spread sectors, spread all the rest of it, this is a market risk that is absolutely affecting everyone. And it may well be, as I understand the Chancellor's announcement just then, obviously we're only a couple of hours on, but as I understand it, it's all very well providing and underwriting salaries or 80% of salaries for workers who can't work because they're sick. Um, but what about businesses who don't have any sick workers but they have a sick business because their revenue has basically been torpedoed overnight. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not clear yet. Of course, none of us are clear yet on all the details because yeah. there aren't any details, but I'm, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that guys. Really? I, I mean, for, for me, I understood it as it was like you said, the government are essentially um, through this coronavirus retention scheme where businesses can claim through HMRC, I think it's 80% of the wages up to a maximum of two and a half grand a month um, for those that can't work. Now, I understood that as not necessarily just sick people, but I understood it as um, businesses that who are looking to maybe lay off employees because they are not getting that income to the business, which is, which is what I think it is. Um, I hope so. Now, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, sure that's what it's about. How you qualify um, an employee who's lost work over someone that maybe is just working from home, um, I don't know, but it sounds like they're going to be fairly generous on, on, on how they're divvying this up. Really, um, I, I think like the, the big message I got from this was just how keen they are to make sure people are doing what they ask in terms of this social distancing stuff they are really pulling out all the stops to really motivate people with the carrot rather than the stick to do this so hopefully people kind of take notice of that but um yeah i think i think this is obviously for employees they made that quite clear and it is a grant as well so that implies that it's not a loan it doesn't need to be paid back by the business and also it can be backdated to the first of march so from that i think that's a big point because i certainly know a lot of people that have been laid off today specifically um seem to be a, a big day for it um and so maybe can those people now go back to their employers and look to say hey look let's take a let me take a 20 percent cut on my on my wages um and 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 let's let's get through this and i think the the key is that they want them uh, the business have to be looking to employ these people long term. So it's got to be an employee they've already got, so an existing employee that they are going to keep for a specific amount of time. So yeah. I would have thought they'll put something on that. I don't know if that employee leaves, then maybe we've got to pay some back. But the, yeah. the reason why I made the point specifically about the insecure workers is because also we haven't really touched on the number of self-employed who are not necessarily actually self-employed but the employers have been effectively encouraging them to work as self-employed. So I don't know, Rod, mm. how many of those people you're talking about are actually on payroll as PAYE. That's the well, other thing that's got me a bit concerned, I, to be well, honest. 
I think with all of these things, inevitably there's always going to be um, people that fall through the cracks and there's there's lots of things like self-employed, gig economy and all that kind of stuff. And there's clearly loads of details to be worked through. But I mean, what I took from this is this is an enormous state intervention into effectively subsidising the whole supply and demand side of our economy. So <laughs> earlier in the week, they very much attacked the, the, the uh, supply side and said, look, if you've got a business, I just want you to keep your doors open. So take the yeah. money, take the loans, take the grants, keep your doors open. And then what they've done today is say, well, if you work for a business and the business is no longer economically viable for the next few months because it has no customers, then we will pay your wages. So there's no reason for the business to get rid of you. So the UK government is funding most of the UK economy at the moment, which is clearly not sustainable forever. But in the short, um, in the short term, I think it was an enormous statement. We went far further than I thought it would go. Well, can I just say, Daryl, I think you, you raised some really good points there. But one of the things that had me worried was I was I was sitting there with the good old back of the fag packet while he was while he was talking. And he seemed to suggest after that announcement that there was about 30 billion quids worth of stuff there. But like you, I was sitting there thinking, well, hang on a second. GDP of the UK is 1.5, 1. 1.6, maybe not this year, but 1.5 plus trillion pounds. So I'm sitting there thinking he's, he's committing to 150 billion to 200 billion pounds worth of intervention yeah. here. No, and then he I, says 30 I, I billion. Didn't add up to Well, I think, I, think, I think the 30 billion was just from today's part. I think in total, it's 15% of GDP is, is, is what, they've, what they've committed to. But they've also said, we're keeping the checkbook open. If we need more, we will do more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what, one of the other points I just wanted to make, just from what Adam said on um, these gig economy workers and people that maybe are seen as um, on the face of it as being self-employed, but in reality, a PAYE. I mean, you've got a lot of zero hour contracts there. And um, one of the things the chancellor did say, which I thought was really, really um, sort of good to answer that straight away was people on zero hour contracts. How do you determine what wage they get? And he goes, it's going to be done on what their regular earnings in the past have been. So I guess they'll look at the last three months and take an average and, mm-hmm. and do it from that. And that, that because no one actually seemed to ask the question about self-employed and we'll get on to obviously directors of companies and things like that and how they pay themselves but that made me think possibly if they thought if they thought that much detail in this short space of time then they've probably thought about um self-employed as well and so maybe it will it will be similar to that because on the face of what they said all that self-employed people seem to get was sick pay and universal credit with no income limit. Um, exactly but that. Again, I think, Rod, you're quite right, because I think yeah. they, they work out holiday pay um, on the base, on that same basis. They look at, I think, the last three months and they, they take an average. So there is precedent there for the, the mathematics of that to hold up and for it to mm. be reasonably mm. fair, I think. So, we'll yeah. see. so I, th- I think on the whole of it, that that's 80% of your income being done. So essentially... You've, from a landlord's point of view, you've got your tenant who's going to be getting 80% of their income. That should be able to pay their rent because with social distancing and things like that, their outgoings are probably going to be minimized. Um, so really, your bigger concern is actually the self-employed, if it's the case that they can only get universal credit. And um, although um, I think it's uh, the housing benefit portion of universal credit has been increased, uh, which is great. Um, 
if you if they're private renters and your private rent is much bigger than the LHA rate, um, there may be uh, a little bit of margin there that you might have to reduce and or agree with with the tenant in some way. Um, and I know Adam, we spoke before a few days ago about stress testing the portfolio to LHA rates because that seemed like the most sensible thing at the time to do because that seemed like Which the also just, just I, taken a big um, a big hike upwards because the well, freeze exactly, that we've seen yeah. since 2014-15 has just been undone in one wave of the old magic money tree right there so uh, jolly good so, so LHA, actually in, in a lot of a lot of places LHA rates are now kind of well really on a par with some of these private rents that are out there so yeah fantastic Sorry, Daryl, did you want to... Yeah, so I think the thing's worth thinking about um, for self-employed tenants, what, what line of work they're in. So if they're uh, in sort of hospitality and leisure sectors, clearly those guys are going to need some help for the next few months or, or casual work in pubs and bars and all this kind of stuff. Um, but you do get quite a lot of self-employed people um, in healthcare. They, they'll be fine for work, assuming that they're, they're well. Um, lots of self-employed builders out there, um, subbies, people like this. And I think... Whilst, you know, we're, probably, we're not going to have a, a stellar quarter for building, there's a lot of people in developments, in refurb projects, they've got to want to finish them. And um, so I think oh, those guys are doing work. Me too. Absolutely. I'm, and I, I'm, I'm number two of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. We're, we're both, we both fall into that, into that point. So I think, I think that's, a, that's a fantastic uh, comment. And um, one of the things that I did two days ago was to go through all our tenants all our tenancies go back to um, uh, the referencing and check who their employment was with. Uh, and we looked at the businesses they were, they were in or if they're self-employed and we looked at who was in our view, the ones that maybe were a bit more vulnerable in terms of uh, um, businesses that, or industries that they were in that could be heavily affected. And, and they're the ones we are targeting to keep really close contact with um, to see what's going on. And actually, today's announcement was um, took a lot, lot off me, although the self-employed ones I'm still uh, a little bit nervous uh, of until we, uh, we get these um, finer details, which hopefully should come out about the same time that this, uh, this podcast episode goes out. So we'll, we'll know a bit more then. Um, one of the other issues, obviously, is directors, because we've got a lot of business owners who pay themselves whether that's through dividends or uh, they probably pay i don't know 12 and a half grand on uh to themselves to to get the um uh what's what's the rate personal allowance i think you're for. thinking of the personal yeah. allowance thank you yeah thanks adam um and then the rest in dividends so if that they're, they're in a business that now isn't that profitable and they can't take dividends out what's the government got in store for those guys uh, that that that's again something that kind of we need to find out the, the finer details of um Darryl, from from your point of view being the finance person here saying all this stuff is great but in terms of the reality of the implementation of this and again we'll go on to kind of the business loans that have been put forward and reductions in um, in uh, certain taxes and things like that how realistic because obviously a lot of this comes through the banks yeah. i know this uh, this grant for is is meant to be through hmrc but i mean I, I, I personally from from last week some of the things that happened 
and I contacted some of the banks and lenders and they didn't really know. It seemed like there wasn't that, that good of communication. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, so I think um, this is where the delivery needs to follow up on some of the messaging that's come out this week. So some of the messaging has been fantastic, but it is now about actually delivering this money into bank accounts. So certainly with the business interruption loan scheme, ultimately it requires bank staff both on the front line to meet the business owner, assess the proposal, put the application together, and also in the credit teams to assess the proposals and get the money out the door. So they are building on a scheme called Enterprise Finance Guarantee that exists and has existed for many years. And, and that scheme is really around, you know, someone's yeah. got a really viable, profitable business, but they just don't have any security to offer a bank. So there's no property involved or anything like that. That scheme was, uh, it was cumbersome, it was bureaucratic, and it was slow. So I think the key now is that the way that this is delivered, although the, the structure of the, the deal for the banks is the same, 80% of the money is guaranteed, it's, it's kind of exactly the same as EFG, it needs to be delivered in a completely different way. So it'll be really interesting to see. Speed is three what weeks these businesses want, isn't it? Yeah, because the, the, the message from businesses is it, it's all about speed. And, um, and again, it's good to remember that this is a loan, and last week they said it's six months interest free and up to five million pounds if your business qualifies for that. Um, but today they just said it's going to be extended to 12 months interest free um, as well. And I think I'll put a link on, on the podcast notes for some of the banks that to go to to get this. But they also said today, because um, there were a few complaints about how long that was taking and they did say that would be ready by Monday. Um, so again, hopefully that will be but what what in terms of um if i've got a business and i'm looking to get take up one of these loans do you have any idea what the kind of qualifying criteria will be so again that's one of the key questions to be answered but my advice to any business owner at the moment would be spend this weekend getting your paperwork in order i still think they're going to want to see your accounts from the last couple of years i still think they're going to want to see some mi I still think if you're not approaching your own bank, and your own bank would be absolutely the place to start for this, but if you're not, you're going to need to get some yeah. bank savings together for your business and for yourself. And they're still going to kind of want to check that they're not putting the money out the door to a business that was loss-making before the crisis started anyway and potentially isn't, isn't viable. So I think if you can get that key pack of paperwork together, so just to kind of recap that again, accounts, bank statements, um, and any financial MI that you've got, at least you can go into the bank prepared of everything they should need to be able to make a quick decision. Yeah, they're doing this through not just loans, but also um, extending overdrafts and yeah. uh, extending credit limits and things like that as well. So definitely um, your own bank is, is certainly the, the one to go to. Um, some of the other, other things that they've announced then for, for businesses um, are obviously the... Um, uh, small business rates relief so any small business rate relief grants um, so if your business currently uh, is registered for small business rates relief you'll get a grant as well uh, there's no business rates for hospitality leisure a lot of these other industries that are under I think 51 grand a year in rates um, which is great but what about some of these businesses that don't have premises um, that doesn't seem it seems only these loans and I think what's important is 
these loans do need to be repaid at some point as well, regardless of the interest-free part. It's that's important. So what, what people might be worried, or I know what business owners were worried about until sort of today, was well, I'm not going to take out a loan to pay staff a wage when there's no income coming in that I've then got to pay that loan back for in the future. So um, I think businesses do need to think carefully about what they're using that loan for if they can sort of qualify. Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree with you, Rod. I think um, what what you've taken away from what we've seen in the announcement tonight is exactly that. Where the the numbers that were being mentioned, I mean, obviously we've we've seen two base rate cuts, we've seen a couple of hundred billion of QE pumped in. Yeah. All of that money doesn't necessarily trickle down as as they might like it to to the um, the man on the street, and I don't think it's helped anybody necessarily sleep any easier at night. Realistically. Um, whereas the the grant side, the the giveaway side of what's been done today, gives the business owners a lot more. I mean, I know I said to you earlier on, I don't think we'll see seventy five percent of wages paid. So I didn't think we'd do what Denmark had done. And in fact, we went five percent better. I didn't think better. that either. Yeah. Who, yeah, would, who exactly. would have thought we would have gone better? So that that has um, maybe shored up the markets. I'm I'm not so sure about the markets myself because I think. We don't actually know at the moment. We've got a lot of anecdotal evidence at the moment about damage that's already been done in terms of um, people being laid off. Like you say, a big thing will be, have we seen, you know, 20,000 layoffs today and 18,000 new hires on Monday morning? We might we might have done that. Might have been exactly what, what the announcement did. Um, mm. I guess we'll only find out when the figures wash out. But it's obviously a lot easier as a business owner to be um, taking money in grants rather than, as Daryl said, that there's a bit of a catch 22. I think a lot of um, small businesses, well, a lot of businesses in general, we're going to talk about construction obviously as well. These businesses that operate to relatively small margins, mm-hmm. um, if you operate to a sub 10% margin and then you lose 80%, 90% of your revenue in one month, mm-hmm. um, that's years and years potentially worth of, of revenue so why would you as the business owner want to go and take out a big loan um that then you might take two three years to pay off that might be all of your profit for a long period of time and a lot of small businesses live comparatively hand to mouth so yeah. grants makes absolute sense realistically doesn't it and there's a lot of argument for maybe businesses doing a little bit of restructuring maybe and uh, liquidating certain businesses and setting up new ones up in there's order to, um, to, to to benefit from that yeah um Daryl, just on that base rate cut, a lot of people have been sort of saying, all oh, right, base rates coming down. Um, when can we expect these really cheap mortgages? And, give and, us some uh, money, Daryl. Give us the money. Yeah. Give us the money. And obviously, as, as the lender here, um, one of the things that, that we've noticed now is a lot of lenders, one, are starting to uh, remove trackers from the market. And two, fixed rate mortgages, their new products are actually starting to go up. So do you want to just give a quick explanation of why that thing, that happens? Yeah, absolutely. So I wasn't very popular earlier in the week, actually, when I kind of called that this was exactly what was going to happen. But the problem is that uh, bank base rate is just one part of the, the cost conundrum of delivering a loan. So your cost of funds is quite often nothing to do with base rate. It's to do with what you need to pay your savers, which... If you're a high street bank, 
don't get me wrong, most of their savings accounts are linked to base rate in some way, but through Challenger Bank, it's usually linked to LIBOR or, or something else. Um, you then got operations, you've got staff, you've got offices, you've got professional partners. There's, there's just, you know, cost of risk, because the cost of risk has gone up this week. So actually that puts rates up, upward pressure on rates as well. Then sort of what compounded that was that last time when uh, base rate went up to 0.75, most lenders um, didn't pass that cost on, they absorbed it and their cost of funds because it was a competitive market, everyone wanted to get money out the door. So you kind of got this situation where lenders have got themselves into a position where they were running on very, very skinny margins for quite a long time. And it kind of works because we've had a very benign market, we've had a very low cost of risk, we've had very low rates of repossessions. What this has done is kind of thrown that logic up into the air because there will be more arrears and there will be more defaults. And even if it doesn't get to the stage where a property is repossessed or a loan is called in, banks still need to hold more capital for loans that are not performing, that are not meeting their conditions. And that all comes with extra cost as well. So what the banks are trying to do is they're trying to get themselves positioned in a way where one, their risk appetite reflects the new reality on new deals where they're able to use their financial strength. And banks are in a much stronger position today than they were in 2007 and 2008, which is fantastic. Yeah. So you're in a position to support the customers, and they will support their customers. But what they won't do is put loans out the front door for new ventures that they're going to make no money or potentially lose money on um, in the coming years. So we're seeing a re- realignment of the market that was probably needed anyway, but it's been forced by events. Yeah, I, I I totally understand that and get that, and it's good to know that obviously the banks are in a better condition due to sort of capital reserves and things like that, which uh, the old rainy day fund. Um, so yes, yeah, some absolutely brilliant points there. I think I think um, Rod, I could just I, could I just add to that? I think what I've certainly seen today specifically um, is actually some pretty good um, credit risk management by some of the lenders because we've seen. 80% LTVs pulled by a yeah. lot of lenders. That makes perfect sense at the moment. I wouldn't be stunned if we saw the 75s pulled. I haven't written that off yet. Um, I think some of them might, some of them might not. Um, and what we've also seen is things like service accommodation products withdrawn, which yeah. again, it, it makes good sense. And I know from talking to the funders that I've been obviously keen to talk to over this week, um, one of them hit a bit of a knee-jerk reaction and offered me some very cheap funds as long as I could guarantee a certain amount out the door. Um, but I said, look, <laughs> I'm going to be really honest in this environment. There's no way I'm going to guarantee anything. So you can forget about that. That's not going to happen. Um, and then the, the counter to that was very much Daryl's side of the argument of actually they're minimizing exposure. They want to take less risk on loans that are out there. We had terms signed on a, on a big loan, on a seven-figure loan, on a great deal and at the 11th hour the lenders said do you know what we're not really sure about this so um we're going to have a meeting about it tonight and we'll get back to you on monday it's like we were supposed to draw funds today well thanks very much guys but we'll um we'll just relax over the weekend and sleep on that one i mean it's painful that all that stuff's really painful and you know it is a really bad look for lenders to be coming out and increasing rates it looks unsupportive but I, you know, I'm not in a bank anymore, but I genuinely believe they're doing this in order to be supportive to the loans they've already got on the book and to minimise credit losses they see on those loans. And the banks don't want to be boom or bust. They want to kind of slowly be able to trade through the uncertainty by doing some uh, sort of risk-adjusted decision-making 
and then be there for when things pick up and go back to normal to you know fuel everyone's plans because people will want to come back out and do deals at some point. Yeah, yeah. I was one of the first to criticise him in 2009, absolutely. But I completely agree with you. I, I was on the phone whilst hearing some of these things and thinking, well, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help me. That doesn't help me. But the, the other side of my personality was going, do you know what? This, this is good credit risk management. And I would rather they manage their risk well and they weren't calling in loans left, right and centre and we didn't find ourselves in GRG style situations yeah. because they've managed really well. And they're having to move at such a pace. I absolutely sympathise with them because there's so much has changed this week. Um, it, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable pace of, of change over, you know, what effectively affects, you know, trillions of pounds worth of lending, effectively. Yeah, it, it's, it's a bit of short-term pain for long-term benefits. So as much as it might not help you today, it will help you because actually you don't want a liquidity crisis as well as exactly. a supply crisis, as well as a demand crisis, as well as a health crisis. <laughs> so you need them. You need them to keep lending and to keep it sensible and to keep it safe. Daryl, you said you weren't going to scare anyone. I'm not, I'm not sure. That was <laughs> so if we can move on now to kind of developments and um, sort of that side of things. Obviously, Daryl, you, you'd lend a lot on to specifically for sort of bridging and development lending. Yeah. Um, I do some developments as well. I know Adam's got some repurbs on. Um, one of my sort of well i've got several concerns um if we start i suppose at the beginning of that that's planning and development cycle one is with planning so um actually fortunately today we managed to get hold of the council planners who obviously are all working from home as well and so they've got to get into their council system um and we've managed to arrange us our planning meetings on skype now which is good there will need to be some site surveys done so hopefully there's going to be no stopping of that of people being able to get to work but then going on to the sort of actual developments one we've got the issue of labor and um, are they able to get to work two are they safe while they're working as well are they not too close to people and things like that and then also it's materials. So all of we've heard yet, well, we've heard tonight that shops are shutting. So how's the production line of things like insulation, plasterboards from coming, even if it's coming from abroad or being made here, how's that getting over to the Travis Perkins and how are we able to order that? So we actually have a, have a site in London at the moment that we bulk ordered so much stuff to that site today um, we put, got it all there today and we installed a new um, security system there just in case we do have to shut that site down at some point and we've got, got stuff inside um, and our kind of plan B, C, etc. was to get uh, drip feed trades in so they're working in different parts of the site and, and not too close to each other. But, I mean, it's it's it looks like a, a difficult thing and there's a lot of bigger contractors as well are very very concerned at the moment about the contracts and it's the contract between developer or contractor and main contractor versus subbies yeah. about kind of force majeure and, and what happens if if a site is shut down and who's paying the prelims and the extra time costs and things like that and it's um i think as as we know we've got a lot of these businesses run on very 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 tight margins so it's i, I think 
I think we're going to see, even regardless of all this stimulus, I can't see everyone getting out of this alive in terms of um, in terms of their businesses. No, no, you, you're right. You're absolutely right. So I mean, just add, this is very anecdotal because I think it's early days to be talking about supply chain on on uh, on. Green. <coughs> One of the, one of the um, partners in our business is a, a large firm who sells one in four of the bricks in the UK, and they've seen a growing trend over the last number of years for an increase in imported bricks, which basically the brick factories in the UK can't produce enough to meet demand. So there's a couple of interesting thing with that, things with that. So the first thing they're saying to us is actually they haven't got a supply chain issue. They still got everything they need coming over, and actually their demand is really high at the minute. The reason their demand's high is because by the point that they're engaged, someone's in a deal on building, so they want to get it finished at the minute. So there's a big rush to kind of actually get things finished more quickly. The second thing with them is that it, that, that kind of imported brick to domestic brick is about, about an 80-20 split. So actually, if you see a drop-off in new developments coming to market, then probably the British factories have enough capacity in order to meet demand in this country. Now, bricks is only one thing. There's yeah. a, a number of other things that you need on a building site, but... Early signs look okay. I think a lot of it just depends on um, exactly what happens around the rest of the world as well as here and how successful countries are at keeping parts of their economy going um, that ultimately can be productive and have demand to sell something. <coughs> I, think, I think things like, I, I'm not sure, Daryl, you might be able to, to um, let me know, but I think a lot of the imported brick that comes into the country is actually fired in Italy, um, which is yeah, interesting in itself, yeah. Um, plasterboard you mentioned Rod I know there's um, I've certainly seen the British gypsum factory in action and it's a lot of um, machines and not a lot of man-made intervention um, fortuitously enough but I think again like Daryl it has to be anecdotal at the moment because we just haven't Mm. got any data we've got what we what we hear through our own networks but if you speak to anybody who is working in a senior position at any of the supermarkets in the UK the issue, again, it's not the actual supply chain itself, but the issue is in the distribution. And ultimately, the supermarkets don't have enough HGV drivers. Um, and, of course, the HGV drivers they do have pretty much work to capacity anyway um, because they do their hours. It's that sort of job. They are grafters. They work 60-hour weeks already or whatever they're, they're allowed to do, whatever their tacos allow them to do. So delivery in itself I think is going to be an issue obviously it doesn't necessarily obviously it's been named as a a key worker thing for schooling and all the rest of it um but we don't have interestingly this is one of the the professions that people have been saying is going to be put out of business by tech and whilst tech may be booming at the moment um we're definitely short on HGV drivers if anyone wants to start a fast track HGV driving school I reckon that might be a little coronavirus tip there for you (laughs) <laughs> well, do, do you maybe think that this is kind of one showing up one of the well the major vulnerability in this just-in-time kind of supply chain whereas well, you get one hit at one end and, and, and suddenly it causes huge huge issues elsewhere I think, I think you've, you've got a really good point yeah I think I mean I think what you'll see we, we've talked a little bit Rod about in, in the past over the past sort of 10 days about how this will actually enact permanent behavioural change in the UK. And Mm -hmm. I think some of that will be, uh, as Daryl was correctly saying there, some of what the banks are doing at the moment is in order to, yes, protect their business, but also encourage the right sort of behaviour. 
And I think at a, at a one person level, we're also going to see some of that. I mean, if you look at some of the, particularly some of the states in America, it's quite regular for them to go to the wholesalers and hoard lots and lots of things like toilet roll, which is topical at the moment. Um, because well, they, they have hurricanes, big freezers, haven't they? But 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 also they have hurricanes <laughs> and they have things that shut down yeah. roads and and things like that. They're quite used to it. And what what they result the result of that is they like go out there two two and a half centimeters of snow. They they buy that's that's what shuts us down. That's for sure. But they buy a bucket <laughs> load of industrial racking and they have these gigantic supplies of stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if this sort of nudges our behaviour more towards. Um, you know, hoarding stuff rather than the the convenience of, you know, mm. we, we do, a, you know, what what's the growing sector in the supermarkets over the last five or 10 years? It's been the Tesco Metro, the Sainsbury's local, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. We, we like that convenience of popping in once a day. Th- these days, as you said earlier today, Rod, you nip into the supermarket at the moment and you just see swathes and swathes of empty shelves. And it's quite difficult, even when you're quite sanguine and, and quite calm, not to look at those situations and think, blimey, this is a bit of a problem. We've gone from the people who initially started panicking to everybody else who goes, well, hang on a second. If everyone else is doing it, what am I supposed to do? How are my elderly relatives yeah. going to eat if I don't get stuff around to them, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, you know? And it all creates more and more and more. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of panic, isn't it, really? Absolutely. So big question then to you both. What... With all, with obviously the crisis that's happened, with the um, measures that the government's taken, what do you think this means for property, UK property, in the next twelve months and in the next maybe twenty-four months, thirty-six months? Big question, very big question. I think. <laughs> Uh, in my head, I have two scenarios in my mind, and they'll both be wrong, but in my mind at the moment, the first scenario is that this is a um, acute crisis for three or four months, and then it's a shallower crisis for a period of time. And what I mean by that is that the social distancing policy is successful enough that, in Boris's words, we break the back of it. A lot of people have had it. Some people have developed immunity. Immunity works, is the first thing. Um, some other people got over it, the hospital capacity is being managed within reason, and people return to the streets. And people return to the streets means back in the restaurants, back in the pubs, back to work, back in the hotels. It won't be normal, but that will create that would create green shoots of a recovery in my mind, and it would enable the government to ease off of some of the support they've given in and for life to kind of slowly return back to normal. If that happens, property will follow it. So opportunities will be there for people to buy cheap because the owner-occupiers will take longer to get their confidence back. So that means there'll be a period of time where a deal will be probably able to be had for an investor, whether it's a development opportunity or whether it's just a buy to let, whatever it might be. And I think we'll start to see activity creep back into the market. The other scenario I've got in my mind, which is more negative, is that this drags, it drags into the winter and, you know, it kind of carries on through the winter and you have a sustained period of uh, you know, small economic activity in a way that we're kind of going to have, or they kind of go on off with social distancing. I think if that happens, then you'll see a more uh, a deeper fall in property values. We'll see a need for sustained government intervention and therefore massive increase in public debt 
and then a much longer recovery cycle in order to get the economy back to the point where it can start paying that debt off. Yeah, interesting. I'll, I'll try and, so Rod, to start with the, the next 12 months, it is a tough question, obviously, at this mm-hmm. point. Um, to start with the next 12 months, I actually think I, I'm inclined to agree with Daryl's first scenario of a sort of U-shape, if you like, in terms of a pretty short, sharp shock. I think transaction values are likely to fall off a cliff. Different reasons for 2000 from 2009, in as much as there are logistical issues for agents right now in terms of viewings. Um, you've got a buyer, you've got a demand shock, and you've got a supply shock. People will sit back. People have been sitting back for years waiting to put properties on the market, waiting for Brexit to be over. Um, suddenly they had about two months of that happening and then they suddenly plunged into this. So people are going to hold stock off. They're worried about prices dropping and then missing out. Um, and people are going to hold off from even viewing stuff. And if you're not viewing stuff, you're going to, I mean, you can do all the virtual tours you want, but not many people are going to, are going to buy stuff. Um, so you're going to see a dramatic reduction in the stock of the agencies. I'm inclined to be more on the side of Daryl's first case because I think it's so damaging to prop up, as you referred to earlier, Daryl, the demand and the supply side of the economy. The forced social distancing slash lockdown style situation cannot persist beyond sort of six to eight weeks in my mind. Um, and that will therefore then bring us on to the second part of the cycle. How well we've done to control that exponential spread, we're going to find out in the next sort of three or four weeks, um, as we know. But then moving on to sort of 24 to 36 months, um, I think we've, we've kind of agreed again here that this will this has cost a lot of money. There's a lot more QE. What we do know from the last sort of 10, 11 years worth of experience is what QE does to asset prices um, and is what the low interest rate will do to asset prices in the economy. It's a borrower's market. Um, and what I also think is, and you, you have to look at these things not really just in in real quantum but in relative terms as well it's been a horrible time to own any equities for the last three weeks um and this is the hardest time you know the circuit breakers have kicked in four times in the dow in two weeks this is incredible stuff um now property hasn't done that yet and as we all know if you can hold on in these situations, mm-hmm. you're not going to crystallize any losses. So property as a relative hard asset, if you will, is so much more attractive right now than equities are. Um, and this is, what have we seen? What did we see in sort of 2010, 11, 12? Not so much, maybe in 11, 12 in London, things were really starting to motor away. But certainly in the Midlands where, where I'm from and where I was buying at the time, you saw a flat market where people didn't have any confidence in property because it had taken a haircut. Now that haircut in reality was about 20%. Um, yeah. We've seen 34% come off the stock market in about three weeks. Um, that would, that will leave scars in people's minds and potentially drive, I think more money towards UK resi, whether that's build to rent style stuff, um, which we've already seen some of the big guns very much involved in. Um, or whether it really forces a bit more of a the sort of thing we've been talking about for the last sort of 18 months or so, Rod, um, the residential prop co as a real investment vehicle that goes out and raises private equity money um, because some of those guys mm-hmm. have taken a bit of a bath in the last few weeks and they're going to be looking to shore up their diversification side of things as well. So I see a really bright future because I think what this has also done 
I think we could also probably agree on is it's kicked right down the road the point at which the interest rate can return to anything like near normal. Absolutely. So it's bought us, you know, another three, three to five years maybe of uber low yeah, rates. Probably. And if you can't make money in uber low rates, you know, in property, you're in the wrong game. So future looks, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, might not feel bright today, but I think it looks super bright for UK. Yeah, well, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I, my first scenario is a scenario that um, our own business is planning around and it's the scenario we think will think will happen. And the really interesting thing with this particular crisis that I, I'm kind of intrigued to see how it plays out is that in the last crunch, it was a, a liquidity problem and it took a long time for that liquidity to come back. So property values fell quite sharply because the affordability wasn't there. That was the issue. You know, you couldn't get enough debt, therefore you need to put more cash in, therefore you can buy a property at the same price as you can buy it when you can borrow and you can leverage um, a bit more. So what's interesting with this one is I don't think that there, there'll be there'll be some turbulence with liquidity as we've already kind of touched on, but I, broadly speaking, I think borrowing is going to be available through this period. So I don't see that as the issue with property values. So really, the problem I see is not so much what happens to values, it's what happens to transactional activity. So, you know, you've got a property on the market today for 300000 I don't think it's the fact, it's the case that you put it on the market for 200000 and you're inundated for offers. That's not the challenge. The challenge is there's, there's no one there who can practically get through the process of buying it. So as soon as you kind of return human beings to the streets and to normality, what's that property worth? Well, if enough people come back out of their houses, it's probably still worth 300,000. Um, and if the liquidity is there to support the borrowing, what, you know, I can't really see that the fundamentals hugely shift. We just got to get through this initial choppy period. I think I'll, I'll pick up on a few points there. So what you kind of both mentioned, uh, Adam kind of talked about the stocks and what happened in 2008 and what's happened in the last three weeks as well. And why property hasn't done that, and it's it's kind of the age old thing of, look, uh, you're 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 doing liquidity versus um, volatility. That's property versus stock market, and so of course no one's got got there yet because property is so illiquid. So we're not going to know for a little bit of time because properties are liquid. So even if people are trying to sell it, and I've heard probably hundreds now of property uh, people who have either been trying to buy or sell and that, that that's not happening right now so they've said oh this has fallen through on the buyer no nope, not going to go ahead with it or seller's gone no nope, it's fallen through buyers got jittery they don't want to do it and that's another part of the Ill- liquidity or illiquidity of, of property um, just on on this kind of bank rate and obviously to keeping rates low for the next three to five years do you think, obviously, with the amount the government's borrowed, that's a big reason behind that another bank bank cut so that they can write, okay, now is the best time ever, I think since 1664 or something, um, to actually Rodney borrow money. So, hey, look, tonight, we're going to borrow 50. <laughs> Rod is sponsored by Cronenberg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, definitely it was in 1600s anyway. Um, but, I mean... That, that's, a, that's a big reason, but to kind of bring it back to kind of the root cause again, I mean, I don't disagree with you, you guys about maybe after 12 months, but I think all of this depends on how the public behaves in the next week or two. And it, it, it genuinely 
for me is how they deal with the social distancing and at what point, if any, there's a bit more forceful nature from the government to kind of say, look, you're not doing this on your own. We're going to have to step in because, I mean, we, we can talk about data all day long and people talking about kind of, oh, well, testing isn't out there. But what we can count on is the number of deaths. And when you start to look at the growth in Italy, uh, Iran and things like that, and when they put these measures in, we're on the same trajectory as them. So if we don't start making a difference now, it's going to cause an issue later. And actually, that's going to elongate this whole issue for a long time. So if we were to lock down now, if we were to do that for a month, then yes, I'd completely agree with you that it is going to be quite short term and then things will bounce back. Um, reasons being because obviously this comes down to it's not it's not actually about people dying it's about people being hospitalized that can be cured that now can't be cured because of the uh, facilities with healthcare beds ventilators things like that so just by giving and we've seen how quickly this moves I mean you talked to me about this three weeks ago everyone thought I was a wacko for kind of talking about this Still two do, weeks mate. ago I Still never do. thought it would be at this stage yeah and, and, and we're at this stage, and it is now people are starting to slightly cotton on. I think even Boris Johnson just changed his whole his whole dynamic, sort mm. of overnight, because they saw that report from Imperial College London, which, by the way, had already been done about three weeks before, and explained it's just they changed the way they laid out the graph. Um, so I think I think for me it really is uh, dependent on what happens in these next couple of weeks. Um, Again, Italy did that lockdown at 465 um, deaths, and that was 10 days ago. They're now over 3,500 in 10 days. I mean, nothing since the plague has killed that many people per day, even the Spanish flu. So, I mean, it's, it's these sort of things I think the public really need to get in their heads. If you want to come out of this, it's better to be short, sharp, disgruntlement right now than taking it a, a longer period. And I, I am maybe a little bit more concerned that the way the government are not kind of clamping down on this may may affect uh, what happens in the future. Having said that, we are behind all these other countries. So everyone else is looking for vaccines and everyone else is creating these uh, more facilities to, to help with the treatment. And it is about the treatment of this. So I think if we can get that, that will be good. There's obviously going to be a dip with the liquidity. No one wants to buy um, a property at the moment. Uh, no one wants to sell because they don't want to realize their losses. So again, it's, it's the whole transaction thing that you kind of touched on, on there. I do think when it starts to go, it's all about wages. And, um, and for me at the moment, I've got a feeling rents are going to start to drop uh, because people's disposable income they're going to have is going to be dropped like we've seen with the 80% of, of wages. So I do think there's going to be some uh, rentals are going to come down a little bit. Um, I don't think it'll be a huge amount. I don't think it'll be by 20% like the, like the wages will be, but I do, I do think it will, it will, it will start to drop. I think uh, landlords need to be um, a little bit wary of that and, and, and same for the commercial landlords too. Um, and I do think it will start to pick up once these wages start coming back. But I think we're going to see some new industries kind of coming forward as as people are, are not going out as much and things like that. I think I think we're going to um, start to see some new um, 
productive industries step up to the plate or i hope we will anyway um but yeah that's that's my thoughts so yeah it's down down to all of us to kind of we've never been so uh so important no i i, I agree with you and I, I see where you're coming from and the the daily rate of change i mean this is the the miracle of compound interest rolled into the fastest lesson that any of us will ever see um, in the most horrible and barbaric way, really. And I think the you, you've said it correctly there, Rod. We see a lot of the writing on the wall in terms of people taking up ICU beds. So other people who then would have been in intensive care anyway are also at risk. Um, but the reality of the human condition is that unless the average Joe on the street sees this stuff in his face happening in the now, they don't give it the credence that it deserves. And numbers are so crucial here. And even, you know, a, a relatively small rate of change and social distancing effectively working um, makes a massive exponential difference to when you can flatten that curve off and make it all work. But I think we're seeing, you know, we've obviously, what, what, have, what have I not seen in, in the press particularly? What has nobody really drawn together? The fact that if you look at the US right now, right, things are concentrated pretty much in New York and California, aren't they? If you look at England, yeah. they have largely been concentrated in London. Yeah. Now we've got an issue in the West Midlands. Not going to be a coincidence that the, that was the largest conurbation. We're the second largest conurbation. We already know where the next big problems are going to be. It's absolutely inevitable. Um, it is clearly about how close you are to each other. There's a great podcast from Joe Rogan who interviews this guy called Michael Osterholm, who's an epidemiologist who had a lot to do with the discovery of um, toxic shock syndrome and stuff like that. And what he says is, listen, you know, this is an airborne thing, right? So we can all talk about coughing into our elbows and, and sneezing and all the rest of it. But ultimately, breathing in a confined space with a lot of people there is going to give you is going to spread this disease. And it's no coincidence that in a London, where you've got lots of people packed into to tube trains and lots of other confined spaces all of the time, that of course it's been a fantastic breeding ground for COVID to spread. And people have got to sharpen up and be wise and stay away from the old and the weak. And that's the message that I've been giving as many people as I can influence this week, which is not really very many, um, but I'm trying my best. Um, and that's the message that everybody's got to get out there. Otherwise, it will be forced upon us in much more of a, a less you're seeing what you're seeing. You're seeing the US, the UK, the Netherlands. These are liberal countries where freedoms are very, very, very highly valued in comparison to some of the Asian countries. Um, and they are, you know, resisting this a little bit and they need to stop resisting it and do the right thing. I mean, I liken it a bit. It's, it's, so I'm, you know, I'm a dad to an 18-month-old girl, and my my natural style for parenting is to be quite hands-off, kind of say, encourage, you know, don't force, don't control, try and show you the right way. And the government is is kind of taking the same approach because it's that softly, softly encouragement type approach. And the optimistic side of me says that the British public are generally quite well behaved, really, on the whole. And um, so, you know, most people will. Probably probably follow the orders hopefully when the message kind of sinks out there and also it does enable some movement and as we touched on earlier the ability for your builder to get on site and stuff like that if they're sensible they're not in a risk category 
They're not going around talking, you know, handshaking people and meeting and greeting people that they shouldn't do, but they're in a property with, you know, in the room on their own, doing some decorating or whatever it might be. I want them to be able to continue to work. I want that stuff to continue to happen, but it's ultimately a privilege. And if people abuse it, and if those of us who can work at home and those of us who can stay away from vulnerable groups of people choose not to, then I just think we'll see the number of cases tick up quicker than the government hope and we'll have lockdowns enforced upon it. So I'm really hoping people can't do the adult thing on this and I think it will benefit us all if they do. Absolutely. And um, I do have just one issue with that in the, the gently, gently approach. We hope the public do that. I completely agree. The problem is how long it's going to take them to do this because the one thing we do not have here is time. And so what we're finding is even our actions today, they won't affect anything for the next 14 days because of the time it takes for symptoms to show up and things like that. So if it's a case in 14 days time, if we continue on this trajectory, we'll have thousands dead already. So if we're going to make a difference, it's got to be done really, really quickly. So people need to get that message across. And I'm just not that confident based on, what's happened over the last couple of days that people are getting that message and i'm i'm sure they will be because like you said the british public normally on the whole behave very well but a lot of people don't um don't get the message across through i don't know some people might not uh be in a peer group on social media that's getting it some people might not be watching news all these kind of things so and some people might just need to be out there um, thinking, well, God, I've got to be earning the money because I'm self-employed and they haven't seen that the government's releasing funds mm. and all this sort of stuff. So that is my only concern is just think, can it I be think, done within the time frame that it really needs to be? I think you're bang on, Rod, and I think we could probably do a straw poll right now. If we check the CCTV of all the bars, pubs and clubs of everywhere around the country, as Boris has given them one last night to have a beer, here you guys are with your, your beers and we're playing ball mm. along here. How many pints are being poured right now in close proximity of other people? And that will tell you how mo- how compliant or not we are going to be as a nation. And I, I'd like you in this situation, I'm very much like Daryl in terms of a, a laissez-faire kind of attitude, generally speaking, towards yeah. my, my parenting and my kids. And I think the nudging, generally speaking, is a good way to work. It's not overly nannying and all the rest of it. But right now, hell, get the tanks on the streets and lock them down if that's what you need to do. That if, if that's you know if it saves, uh, but if it saves ten thousand people's lives, and that that's what we could be talking about here, or twenty thousand people's lives, you know, it, it's. I got think we're to talking be, about hundreds of thousands of people, to be honest. Well, yeah. If we if we don't, I, I mean, you saw it way more. You mentioned um, Spain, and I think they luckily had the presence of mind to go from one day saying, "Hey, well, it's not that serious," to within thirty six hours calling a full-on state of emergency. And what you might see that's in Spain how quick now... It moves. That's it. And, and you might see in Spain now that the things get worse than they have done in Italy. So we are very, very lucky that we are 10 to 14 to 21 days behind some of these countries because at least we've got that to see. Um, and at least we've yeah. got another 21 days jump on a, on a vaccine and all the rest of it. But there's there's one more thing, Rod, that we talked about beforehand that we might sort of be worth talking about because we talked then about property and how the long-term effects might be or the, the, the short to medium term effects might be on the market but the wider economy of a whole just drawing together some of the stuff that both you guys have already said tonight ultimately 
Um, we've got a situation now where we're going to see, I think we would agree, a suppressed interest rate for longer than we expected. Um, very low cost of borrowing. I personally was, I mean, I, I was actually out of the country um, when the budget was delivered. But what I was stunned to see was um, it almost passed without incident. And whether that's because, you know, I move in property circles rather than anything else. But £600 billion was announced in terms of infrastructure spending. Um, and this is supposed to be the great gift to um, the northern constituencies that have given the Conservatives a chance for the first time and all the rest of it. But the, the reality of that £600 billion is the vast, vast majority of that is going to be borrowed money. And ultimately, it really is the way that America largely responded to the 2008 global financial crisis. They invested in infrastructure. They invested in things like that, whereas we went down the QE kind of route. And I think and I hope that that 600 billion, if now it goes ahead, is borrowed at a cheaper rate because of what we've done and should show a real rate of return that should finally see the economy come back to the two, two and a half percent a year growth rate, maybe even three percent. Because what I think we're seeing here is a potential to right the wrongs of the mistakes we made in 2008. The big danger is. And, and not just on the on the the virus front, but the big danger is everything we've been talking about has been moving so so quickly that it's very very easy to make a mistake. And I hope if we do make mistakes, we have the presence of mind to correct them very quickly as well. And that's the one of the big risks that I see right now. But I think I think that's yeah. spot on. So not not all borrowing is bad. I think sometimes there's just a connotation that borrowing money debt debt is a negative word. But borrowing for infrastructure is great. You will get a return on investment borrowing and improving infrastructure. What you don't get a return on investment on is when you need to borrow in order just to meet your day-to-day spending. But if you invest in the infrastructure and grow the economy, that becomes less and less of an issue because you've got more wages, more taxes and all the rest of it. So I totally hope and I actually expect that'll be the response. And then my only other thought is kind of, you know, all that positivity for the future is absolutely justified. we just got to get through the, the now so you know when people need help you know if people are struggling i just hope people know kind of reach out there's lots of great communities just like partners and property just really encourage people to talk to share things and and help each other through this because you know we will get through it thanks for the shout out Darryl. we appreciate and, it but <laughs> and what what do you think i mean you've touched on it there about the infrastructure spending but obviously we've the government is now borrowing huge amounts to sort of which really is being spent on day-to-day spending so i know there'll be a lot of people thinking all right well we needed this but how on earth is it going to get paid back what does that mean for the longer term economy so what are your thoughts on that well i I was reflecting before we started this conversation on the fact that the initials for the magic money tree are the same as the initials (laughs) for modern monetary theory um, and, oh, and that's God. quite an that's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, I think, and I think you can see what the international currency markets think of what's going on at the moment, because of all the countries in the world, it is sterling that's taken a big, big walk, a big walk. Mm. And if they think, if they put two and two together and think, well, hang on, are we really committing to these plans in the budget as well? We've, in, it, to my calculation, if we added the fiscal and the monetary together we've probably committed around about 1.1, 1.2 trillion um, in the last 10 days. 
Now, that is the vast majority of the GDP of the UK, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and that's a decent sum of money to be spending. So we've, for, for the basics, we've spent a year's money in 10 days. Um, we can't really carry on at that sort of rate. And I think the current, there'll, there'll be a lot of speculators in the currency markets at the moment. They were looking at the pound and saying this could be a real you know, devaluation is not off the cards. There are. You know, the, the one thing that's got me a little bit concerned at the moment, and I don't want to concern anyone who's listening, but if we have a n other black swan scenario on top of where we are now, whether that's a badly managed credit crisis, hopefully from what Daryl's saying and what the banks are doing, we're not going to see um, any kind of credit crisis. But if we see a badly managed one, there's a whole number of other things that could happen. Um, you know, if one of the, the mad countries in the world decides this is the time to start nuclear war, whatever, whatever, there are things that we just could not cope with at the moment as a global system. And we in the UK, we're really, really, really quite fragile right now. So it, I hope that the medium term outcome is it looks like um, UK property is very attractive to foreign buyers, even with their new 2% stamp duty hike that they're phasing in, um, and that we can mm. control the inflationary part of it because we've got depressed oil prices um, and we've got a, a big lack of demand on the on the oil side of things for the moment. Um, and hopefully that can balance out some of the... Because we've seen a near-Brexit-style um, drop in the currency in the last 10 days, and it hasn't even made page five of, of the papers that I've been reading. Um, and that just shows you how much stuff there is over and above the top of that in terms of everybody's attention at the moment. So... You know, we, we'll see. I do. I do like Daryl. I, I think I support the infrastructure spending massively. The one thing I really like about Boris, apart from his hair, obviously, because his hair is fantastic. But the one thing I really like about him is he's a Keynesian. Um, and I think, you know, that infrastructure spending is something we should have done a decade ago. We're badly, badly outdated. You can just look at HS2 and see how behind the curve we are from a, no. a tech point of yeah. view. On, on moving people around the country. Um, but this is a real, this is a really, really good thing. And I hope that the whole coronavirus thing does not throw the train off the tracks as far as this promised infrastructure spend goes, because I think the economy will benefit massively in the, in the ne over the next 10 years from that sort of spend. And, and I agree with, with the infrastructure spend. It's more about, and I think what, what people are, concerned about is this day-to-day -day spend getting us out of this hole the employee stuff the grants etc what would you say that that's going to do to the economy and can we get out of it and do you think because it's such a low rate at the moment inflation will sort of bury that away and within 10 years we'll we'll be okay or what are your thoughts on that I don't think inflation will bury it away uh, is my gut feel the scale of this is enormous and um, mm. It's necessary in my view, but it's also an enormous amount of borrowing to be taken on. It's not a bad time to take borrowing on, but it's still a lot of money. So I do expect this to filter through in the future to tax increases, you know, at the right point. So at the point when the economy is recovering, you know, we're seeing unemployment get back to kind of record low levels where it was before we started the crisis. And we, we actually, earlier in the year, we were seeing wage growth. And, um, you know, it's a bit of a running joke for me, mm. kind of. You know, yep. the point the wage growth come in, I, I took a massive salary hike by leaving the bank to start something new. But we were seeing wage growth. So I think what will happen is that there's going to need to be a sort of slightly higher tax environment than we were used to seeing before when we can afford it to pay some of this stuff down. I don't really see another way out of it. 
I think do, I think Daryl's think... got to be bang on there, really, because I think ultimately what we've seen here is, and whether it's because we had a, a Jeremy Corbyn in opposition and they went so far to the left of centre, they left all of the rest of the territory up for grabs. And you've currently, I mean, even if you ignore the last week, and that would be difficult to do, you still had some policies in the budget that were probably left of a Tony Blair, Gordon Brown budget. Um, mm. I think I think we could probably agree on that as well. So it really is interesting times. But as Daryl said, this has got to be, this will come back to the old, are we going to fix the roof when the sun starts shining again? Um, ultimately, what, what did austerity not achieve, regardless of the... Um, your thoughts on, on its efficacy. What did it definitely not achieve? It didn't get the deficit down to where it said it would do. Um, it didn't get the debt down to where it said it would do. It didn't do it in the time frame. The time frame got pushed back for years and years and years until ultimately we've had a, a crisis forced upon us by a random black swan event. Um, so hopefully the infrastructure spend will be able to add enough to the economy to balance out what austerity couldn't do. And we will, I mean, you already saw them trying to grab tax via IR35, trying to grab it by entrepreneur's relief. George Osborne has already given the landlords a bit of a kicking. We could see CGT go up um, because there is room for CGT to go up. I think we could even see a wealth tax. None of these things are out of the question. Um, the trust tax that was implemented um, a while back was relatively unprecedented, but there wasn't a lot of news about it. But what, what I think the inevitable 10-year results here are is, is, as I say, assets are going to inflate ever yet further. And that is still going yeah. to raise the gap between the rich and the poor. And there will be some relatively easy targets for the government to look at and say, you know, we're going to take some of that. We were already seeing in the budget before um, they were freezing the personal allowance and they were freezing the higher rate of tax threshold. Um, that might be something they put into practice for five or ten years to pay back the coronavirus um, because ultimately, if there is, I think there will be a level of inflation because of what we said about the exchange rate, apart from anything else. Um, yeah. And the, the, their favourite way to take taxes in stealthy ways, um, you, you, you might see VAT at 25% when things get back to normal. That's not out of the question to put some money back in the coffers as well. So no, we'll see. What makes that particularly difficult to predict is I also think whenever a country goes through a shock trauma like this, there's going to be changes in society, in people's attitudes, in terms of what they're happy to tolerate and, and not prepared to tolerate. Because, you know, there's been talk for years about the corporates not paying tax and domiciling themselves in an island somewhere, even though they make all their money in the UK and the US, wherever it might be. And to be honest, most of us kind of go, we don't really like that, but it is what it is. And mm -hmm. but I think when you go for a shock like this as a country, actually as a world, some of the attitudes towards these things might change. I also think some of the attitudes to climate change might change, and you might see a shifting around of people's priorities that then influence the way that recovery is structured financially. I think you, I think you hit on a really brilliant point there, Daryl, because I was trying to think about, I think Rod made a comment um, within the last couple of days about, you know, who are the big winners here, and you can't see too many big winners. You know, people joke, well, Detol are doing okay and all the rest of it. But ultimately, I thought of five big winners earlier on today, and they were Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, right? Now, all of those guys, as you correctly say, tend to domicile their profits somewhere between the Dutch Antilles and the, the Bahamas. And that doesn't do any of us any good whatsoever. And if they skin an extra $10 billion, yeah. um, out of the UK corporate economy this year, that has not helped any of us one little bit. 
Um, and, and I agree with you, we could, we definitely will see behavioural change, but we will see perceptions change as well. And you've seen, you know, the way that, for example, um, estate agents have responded to the way Rightmove firstly reacted. So for those who don't know, you know, Rightmove said, well, you guys can have a 500 quid payment holiday for three months and that'll do you. And the agents en masse just said, you know what, we're just going to cancel our subscriptions because at the moment we can't see lots of viewings being being carried out and all the rest of it. And Rightmove, who are as close to a monopoly in a public company as, mm-hmm. as I can think of in, in the stock market at the moment, um, they turned around and said, oh, no, 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 we're really sorry. We're going to cut 75% off for the next three months. And Zoopla <laughs> have come in and said, Do you know what, actually, we're going to give you a better offer. We'll give you nine months free if you leave Rightmove now and come to join us because they, they they put 15 million quid aside to, to really strike while the iron's hot and you're going to see but does that create value for investors in Zoopla or Rightmove? It absolutely doesn't because what it does is it creates a stock market concern and a price war in what is a relatively monopolistic market and if we see further value destruction from the shareholders point of view like that because, uh, as you've sort of said there, Daryl, a bit of a reset, a bit of a ground zero. Mm-hmm. And you, you touched on earlier on, Rob, which I think is a really interesting point. This could be a time for business restructuring for people who read the fine print and work out maybe how to get the best out of um, this crisis from their own personal perspectives and their own businesses' perspectives. Absolutely. None of that stuff yeah. none of that stuff is value creation exercises, gents. It's value destruction. And it's, um, you know, taking money from the public purse and trying to put it in your own pocket. This does not feed mm-hmm. the economy. This does not help us grow out of this crisis. We're going to get out of it because we're dragged out of it by the scruff of our necks um, economically. And we may need to do a lot more than just nudge in order to do the right thing to, to see the back of it. So it's quite an interesting time regarding, you know, what the medium term effects of that will be. Mm-hmm. absolutely well some absolutely brilliant um comments there and um is there anything else you want to add before we leave or any points that you think would would be worth touching on um daryl do you want to say do you want to say anything i was just kind of thinking through um no i think i think we've we've covered um most of the things i think it's say like the thing that's kind of top of my mind at the moment is just that point about reach out if you need help and um, you know we'll get there there'll be a recovery but in the meantime we all need to try and make this as um you know get the best out of this time for each other as we can and i I thought the the announcement as well by the government and uh the chancellor today was really positive um certainly from my point of view it was yeah no i agree with that and i think a lot of people will sleep better tonight on the back of it and i I totally echo daryl's thoughts and, and words there around being positive and i'd say you know this is the time also to take stock Make the most of the people that are nearest and dearest to you. Look after them. Um, look after yourself. And it's made me certainly realise, even if we've got the biggest deal we've ever done, potentially about to fall over, ultimately, look in the mirror. It doesn't matter. Um, reset what you thought might happen in 2020. Get through it. Regroup. There's going to be some absolutely spectacular opportunities over the next three to nine months for those who are agile um, and those who can take sensible risks. Um, and just keep talking, keep learning, keep smiling, um, and stay away from everyone. Stay away from them. Let's do do more of this, and let's do less of the more, less more of the physical stuff. <laughs> and I think if you do, you know, my my kind of thinking on a personal level on this is, 
you know, if I find myself um, sort of running out of things to do, which has certainly not happened yet, but if I do, um, this is a fantastic time to make new relationships. You can do that remotely on platforms like this, learn a bit more about people and get your business set up so that when this recovery comes, you are ready to absolutely hit the ground running and use this time as productively as you can. Because there is an awful lot of prep and planning that you can do and admin you can get out of the way. Yeah, it's definitely time to fine tune a business, I think. Um, guys, thank you so much for spending your Friday night with me, albeit at different parts of the country. Um, really appreciate it. Daryl, do you just want to um, give a bit, bit of info on, on your company and how people can get in touch with you, maybe if they want to chat about any lending? Yes, yeah, so you can, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me at www.lendwell.co.uk. You've got our contact details and stuff um, on there. But um, we, as I say, we're, we're a lender. Most of the stuff that we fund is refurbishment, development, these kind of things. So, you know, not expecting huge amounts of new deal activity, although we're seeing some bits and bobs where people want to kind of close on stuff that they're committed to. But I think for me, just... Anyone who's active in the sector, anyone who's interested, anyone who wants any advice, support, anything to do with mortgages, banks, lending, just reach out. I'll just help. And every conversation is a new connection that you never know where that goes in the future. I'd just like to say I've had loads of fantastic conversations with Daryl um, and he really knows his stuff. So we all, like, like you listening here now, we'll see. He knows what he's talking about and he's a really great guy. So do please get into contact with him. Uh, and Adam, any, obviously we've been on episode 14. Is there any, anything else you want to let the audience know? Um, just to say, you know, Partners in Property is alive and well during this time, as Daryl kindly pointed out. Um, the WhatsApp groups have absolutely exploded. There's been bucket loads of support going around the whole community. There's been some brilliant, brilliant stuff shared. We're online for the next, I would suspect, two to three months only. And, and our behaviour will change throughout the whole of this I think we'll certainly be running digital meetings on a regular basis, um, layering that within our, our current portfolio of face-to-face meets as well. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys face-to-face again, um, but I'm, I'm also <laughs> looking forward to seeing you guys virtually um, while we're all locked indoors for a while, self-imposed mm-hmm. or government-imposed. So if anyone wants to check out Partners in Property, it's www.partners-property.com. Um, we're going to have a special coronavirus um, membership offer that we're putting on, not to profiteer from it, but just to reflect a bit from the fact we're not going to have to spend loads and loads of money on venues like we normally do over the next few months. Um, and we welcome anyone to to dip in and have a look and see what we've got to offer. So um, thanks very much, Rod, again for the chance to be on another another great episode. So and thanks, Daryl. It's always great talking to you. Great to catch up with you both. And thanks for the kind comments, Rod. Your toilet roll is in the post. all right guys well i hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and thanks very much please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the rodcast